You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. What do doctors do in the ICU who receive the highest marks from patients and families? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and joining me today is Dr. Randall Curtis, professor of medicine at the University of Washington in Seattle and attending physician in pulmonary and critical care medicine at Arborview Medical Center. His research focuses on improving palliative and end-of-life care for patients in the ICU. Dr. Curtis, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Thank you very much. What do doctors do in the ICU who receive the highest marks? Well, I think there are a number of areas that are important for doctors and that do give them, as you say, the highest marks from patients and families as well as from other clinicians. Perhaps the most important area is is one of communication. Communication in the ICU is primarily with family members since patients are usually too critically ill to communicate. Uh, and that, but that is an area where I think it's incredibly important to families, and it does generate a lot of gratitude from family members when it's done well and a lot of frustration and distress when it's done poorly. I think that probably if I were going to offer one piece of advice to ICU physicians, it would simply be to listen, uh, to listen to family members. That's probably the single most important thing we can do in improving our communication skills. And then we've also developed a mnemonic to help physicians improve their communication skills with family member that we call VALUE, V-A-L-U-E. The V stands for valuing things that the family members have to bring to the table and the things that they say. A is acknowledging emotions that occur uh, in these situations. The L stands for listening, probably the most important thing that we can do. The U is for understanding who the patient is as a person, asking the family member questions about who they are and what's important to them. And then the E is eliciting questions from family members, not just once, but but multiple times. I guess one other area that I think is really important and and gets doctors high marks is is valuing the interdisciplinary team. Uh, I think that uh, more and more uh, we're realizing how important that is in critical care in general, but I think it's especially true Uh, around palliative care and end-of-life care in the ICU. How well are doctors prepared for this area? I think that our ability to prepare doctors uh, in this area has been improving in the last five years or so. But to be honest, I don't think we have done a good job of preparing doctors, and I think we have a lot to a lot of room for improvement uh, in the ways that we do that. My entire training in communication about palliative and end-of-life care consisted of a one-hour video, uh, and that was it. And I think that's really uh, changed over the years, and it's improving. But as I say, I think there's a lot of room for more improvement. Does the variation of ICU skills that you're describing with patients and families among doctors correlate to years in practice? No, I would say that it does not. Uh, We've done research where we've audiotaped family conferences in the ICU and looked at clinician skills and physician skills around this communication. And I've really found that years in practice is not a very important predictor of communication skills. Uh, And I think that's true for a number of reasons. I think there are some physicians who do get better at this uh, over time, but by and large, these are people who have who have taken it upon themselves to teach themselves how to do this better because we haven't had good ways to, to teach people how to do this. And in fact, sometimes it's the younger physicians who've had more training uh, and skill building work in communication and, and may actually, in some situations, do a better job. How can doctors improve their skills in this area? 
I think there's an emerging literature, uh, both research and, and also review articles, in how to have these kinds of communications that can be helpful. So I think obtaining that information and reading that can be helpful. I also think that we can learn a lot from observing our colleagues, clinicians who do this well, either in the ICU or especially outside the ICU. Uh, one of the ways in which I think we can improve care is to make better use and more use of palliative care specialists bringing in a palliative care specialist into an ICU to help with difficult situations may also be an opportunity for physicians to learn from uh, these other clinicians around communication skills in, in other areas. How do families rate their physicians on communication skills compared to clinical skills? Research suggests that families actually find communication skills to be more important to them than clinical skills. And that may seem a little counterintuitive to ICU clinicians who who think their first and foremost job, their their most important priority is to save the lives of their patients. Uh, and that that's true, but it's important to understand that family members, how they understand the quality of care is really almost entirely through our communication. Uh, and so to family members, communication is vitally important. And it's the area in which we, family members, believe we have the most room for improvement. It's the area that, that generates, I think, the most frustration and, and distress among family members. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and joining me today is Dr. Randall Curtis, discussing what doctors do who receive the highest marks from patients and families in the ICU. Dr. Curtis, how can doctors describe a patient's chance for survival in terms family members can understand? I think that these kinds of discussions, it's very important to, first of all, understand what the patient and family knows and understands uh, at the outset. And I think it can be very helpful to ask them to describe in their words what they think is going on. And that can help cue the, the physician to what kinds of information they understand and the kinds of language that they're going to best understand. I think it is important to talk about prognosis with family members to be straightforward about that but also to be clear about our level of certainty or, or uncertainty uh, in that prognostication. Family members want to hear information about prognosis, uh, and I think it can be useful to give them numbers. But it's also important to remember that they often care as much or more about prognosis for quality of life uh, as they do about prognosis for survival. So it's important to talk about, about that as well. How do you explain DNR to patients and families in the ICU? Well, I think that uh, it's important to talk with patients and families about CPR and the value of CPR. For many critically ill patients, CPR may be fully indicated, and, and it is very reasonable to attempt it if the patient does suffer a cardiac arrest. But as patients get sicker, or particularly if they have very significant burden of chronic illness and comorbidity, CPR may not be indicated in some situations, and then it's important to talk about that, to explain what CPR is and what we think the chances of success are with it, and to make a recommendation about whether we think uh, CPR might be indicated for a given patient or family. Personally, I, I don't go into graphic descriptions of CPR with family members. I, I don't think that that's necessary, and, and sometimes I see clinicians who talk about you know, pounding on chest and breaking ribs almost as a way to dissuade people 
Uh, and I'm not sure that that's always fair or, or necessary. Give us a principles and practice of withdrawing life support in the ICU 101. I think it is important to keep in mind some of the principles around withdrawing life support, that, that in these situations where we're withdrawing life support, the primary goal of care is to maintain comfort while removing treatments that are no longer indicated or desired and don't serve that goal of maintaining comfort. In that circumstance, withholding and withdrawing life-staying treatments is really ethically and legally uh, uh, equivalent, and, and we don't need to worry about or focus on the distinction between withholding and withdrawing. I also think it's important to mention that many clinicians feel that those things are different, and we need to honor and understand those feelings, but in the way that we approach this, uh, we don't need to distinguish those. And I think it's important to realize that all treatments can be withheld or withdrawn if they aren't serving the goals of maintaining the patient's comfort in that situation. I encourage people to withdraw all life-sustaining therapies if, if we're in that, if we're changing the goals of care and our mode now is to, to maintain patient comfort. Really, it doesn't make sense in most situations to stop some life-sustaining treatments and continue others. And that when we are stopping life-sustaining treatments, for the most part, those treatments don't need to be tapered. They can just be stopped outright. The one therapy that's common in the ICU and that does need to be withdrawn in a stepped or tapered fashion is mechanical ventilation because uh, many times withdrawing that suddenly will cause patient discomfort and distress. And so that does need to be done in a more stepped and careful way, but generally can be done over 5 to 10 or 15 minutes with uh, titrating sedation and analgesia as needed for patient discomfort during that process. Do you observe that when patients are very well prepared for vent removal that they often continue to breathe, if only for a short time, on their own? Yes. I mean, there is a lot of variability around that, and, and it depends on the severity of illness that the patient is suffering from as well as the type of illness. In situations where patients are severely ill with sepsis and ARDS, for example, the usual time from withdrawal of ventilator to death can be quite short uh, on the order of, you know, minutes to hours. But there are certainly other circumstances where we withdraw life support in the ICU setting, for example, in patients with end-stage lung disease or in patients who have devastating neurologic injury where they may actually breathe on their own and survive for days or even a little longer. And it's important to prepare family members for that, both for the uncertainty and how long it may take, as well as our estimates, our guesses of, of what that range might be. What's your best advice for running a family meeting with emotions running so high and time running short? I think it's really important, first of all, before sitting down with the family, to sit down for a few minutes with the ICU clinicians who are going to be there to make sure that people are all on the same page, to talk about the agenda, what it is that we want to talk about and accomplish with this meeting. Uh, and then in going into a, a family meeting, I encourage clinicians to, to talk a little bit with the family about the agenda and what we want to talk about and make sure they understand that if they have specific things that they want to talk about or ask, that they need to do that. 
We usually start by giving a little bit of an update on what's going on, but it's important that that update not be too long or technical. We often call that the opening monologue or sometimes diatribe of the ICU physician, and it's important to to check in with the family to make sure that they understand that, the information that we're giving them. And then I think in those settings, it's also important to think about the the value mnemonic that I mentioned, that we're valuing the things that that the family says acknowledging emotions that they're having, listening to their perspective and their views on the patient's values and like, likely treatment preferences, asking about the patient, understanding who that person is as a person, and then finally making sure that we elicit questions from the family to make sure that their, their questions have been addressed. How can doctors learn more and specifically about the value mnemonic? The value mnemonic was tested in a randomized trial recently that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, earlier this year. A study was performed in France, uh, and they used that as one of the central components and showed that by using that mnemonic, they actually had a significant reduction in the burden of symptoms among family members three months after the patient's death, symptoms of uh, depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder. And so that description is available in the New England Journal Uh, And then I think there are also other good review articles about how to put that in context that are are available. Dr. Curtis, thank you so much for joining us today. You're very welcome. I enjoyed it. I'm Susan Dolan, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.